Here we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Petropolis podcast. I have two wonderful guests today. John Goodwin, the senior director of the Stop Puppy Mill campaign with the Humane Society of the U.S. And Elizabeth Manigan, the founder of Hands to Paws app, which matches people with the right animal. And uh, she's got a couple of other things in the works as well. She's trying to stop landlords from leasing to puppy stores. And you also have what, Liz, the campaign for, remind me. Billboards, billboards against puppymills.org. Okay. So you're an anti-puppy mill person. I mean, I think everyone thinks they're against puppy mills, but then (laughs) they make some choices and those choices kind of create an environment. They're they choose to buy an animal online and that defeats the whole purpose of being against puppy mills. John, let's talk about all the wins that the Humane Society has had in 22, all the accomplishments you guys have had in 2022 with stopping puppy mills. New York became the sixth state to prohibit the sale of puppy mills, Nevada, will stop selling puppies in one of the counties. You shut down the American Kennel Pet Store in New York. I hated that store. I'm in New York City. Okay, okay. Toxic. That was terrible, terrible. Yep, USDA ended its Teachable Moments program. That I definitely want to talk about, which has been uh, used to hide violations from breeder inspection reports since 2016, at least 2016. So a lot has happened but it still feels like we're all in limbo, that there's so much more that needs to happen. Can I start with New York State? Sure. There are puppy stores everywhere. I was driving on Long Island, passed by seven stores that sell animals, and the rule goes into effect in January 24, correct? Late, no, no, December of 2024. December 2024. The bill that passed the legislature originally would have gone into effect one year after the governor signed the bill. So they passed the bill, and I think it finally cleared the assembly in June of 2022. Governor Hochul did not take action on the bill until December. So that right there gave them six more months. But to but to have the bill signed into law, she insisted that the legislature give them an additional year. So it became a two-year phase-out. So as of December 2024, none of the stores in New York State will be allowed to sell puppies. Now, I will say there were about 67 stores that sold puppies when Governor Hochul signed the bill, and today there are 55. So I imagine that there were about a dozen or so who maybe their lease was expiring and they didn't see the point in renewing a lease or or maybe the retirement was coming up. But for whatever reason, we're down to 55 in New York State, and it should be zero by the end of next year, unless someone attests the enforcement mechanisms and uh, run their luck that way. How does that happen? Well, there are a handful of stores that will just keep selling puppies and defy the law. Perfect example is a Petland store. Now, this, this particular franchisee who owns this store He's being sued by his bank for defaulting on $7 million in loans. He had to sell his store in Kansas because 
He had so many citations from the Kansas Department of Agriculture that they wouldn't let him sell puppies anymore. And he just had an arrest warrant issued for himself in Houston because he wouldn't even show up to court for a hearing on the citations he'd received for illegally selling puppies. So there are a few people who like to test the resolve of the enforcement agencies, but that always ends up being a mistake. And I'll just say real quickly, there are a few stores in Maryland that tried that and ended up with $100,000 fines because our attorney general in Maryland went after them very aggressively. So I would advise these stores not to push their luck, but if they want to, we're very happy to go down that road with them. So the Humane Society is constantly on and stopping the, the egregious acts that these stores are doing. And tell me about the horrible 100. You keep reporting who these horrible 100 puppy mills are, but they're still in existence. How does that happen? And where's the USDA and the regulatory bodies in overseeing the shutdown of these facilities? Why do they still exist? So it, every year we create a new horrible 100 report. So we've done, and each one is a new 100. Well, when I say new, I mean, it's a, we compile the list from scratch every year, but there are people who are in there repeated. Some are in there seven or eight times. But a lot have been. So, John, so I'm well aware of the Horrible Hundred because Hands to Pause actually will post on social media and they will also post the wins that you have, places that are shut down. But when I see a puppy mill that has been a repeat offender five times, that means five years. That's right. That's right. It means five years. And it, it, it's like, does the Department of Agriculture clearly is failing That's because right. if there is a system in place, is is there no, is it three strikes you're out? I mean, how difficult is it to shut down a puppy mill? So, and why do these people keep keep coming up when it should be, you know, three strikes you're out, not, you know, five years? And, you know, when you look at the list of puppy mills who have been in the Horrible 100 report and were shut down, many of them were shut down by state authorities. Uh, for example, the Missouri Attorney General's office has shut down a, a number of the worst actors in Missouri. And, and that surprises people because Missouri has got more puppy mills than the other state, but their Attorney General's office has gone after a few. The USDA, first off, there's incredibly weak standards of care for the dogs. And second, enforcement has at times been in the toilet. Other times it's been, you know, okay. It's never been particularly robust. That's why we're focusing on stopping the sale of puppies in pet stores, because we've gone down this road of trying to get the reforms that are needed in the states that have the puppy mills. Well, the states with the most puppy mills are states with very large agricultural economies. Yeah, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, yeah, those are states where big agribusiness has a disproportionate amount of influence in the state legislature, and they will block puppy mill bills that try to make life better for the dogs because, heaven forbid, if you give the dogs an extra inch of space, the next thing you know, we might require that the hens have enough room to flap their wings in the egg-laying facilities and whatnot. So they, so they block. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. They lobby the USDA to be weak on enforcement. Okay, that's fine. But you have to sell the puppies somewhere. And so it was that lack of desire on the behalf of the, what they call the commercial dog breeding industry to have any real reform 
that made us realize that we need to go to where they're selling the puppies and shut off the marketplace there. So those problems that you point to, Elizabeth, are extremely real. Very, very real. You couldn't be more correct. And that's, that is dictated what our strategy is. Well, I think, and that's why Hands to Paws was created because as a dog owner, I was seeing people that were not only buying the wrong breed, but they were buying from pet stores. And I have to tell you, this online free-for-all is going to push pet stores and it's, it's gaining momentum. And there was over 10,000 complaints with the Better Business Bureau and 400 complaints with the Department of Consumer Protection. I don't know of any state that has publicly addressed online puppy sales, all cash, unregulated, no guidelines, no accountability, and it's burdening the shelter system. It's burdening consumers with massive amounts of medical bills, veterinarian bills. What are your thoughts on the online puppy mill industry? These backyard breeders that are commanding $7,000 a dog. Well, first off, what amazes me is that more puppy mills haven't gone that route because it, it's kind of flabbergasting because they'll sell a puppy to a pet store for like $300. And okay, that's not really very much profit. The pet store might sell the puppy for $6,000 and the pet store is taking all that profit. They could sell online. Uh, well, they do though. They do. They do. Don't is what I'm saying. I don't understand why they why you would ever even bother selling the pet store because there is more money to be made selling direct and cutting out. But the puppy mills are. They're using brokers and they're setting up websites. Well, I'm, I'm speaking about the 500,000 puppies uh, that are sold through pet stores every year. Why would anybody skip out on all the profit by selling pet stores? It just makes no sense. I think some of these puppy mill owners are just maybe just lack any social skills or something and they just can't interact with the general public because I don't, I mean, you, you're yeah. making sense and I don't understand why more haven't gone down that road, but our recommendation to anyone buying a puppy, if, if, if of course we recommend going to a shelter and adopting a shelter dog, I have three rescues myself, but for people who have their hearts set on an eight week old purebred puppy, you, you can avoid puppy mills by meeting the breeder meeting the mother dog and seeing where the mother dog lives because all those sales outlets, the pet stores that we've talked about at the beginning, the online sure. sellers, Elizabeth just brought up, the flea markets, run a Craigslist ad and meet you in the Burger King parking lot. All of those sales outlets have one thing in common. They keep the consumer away from where the parent dogs are. That's what Hands to Paws is all about. I could have had the app created and say to you, answer the 12 questions, get matched with the right breed and leave it at that. I purposely connected every breed recognized by the American Kennel Club, which is a whole other conversation. I view hands to paws as an educational device. It's a conduit, it's free. And I'm trying, the app is trying 
to get the attention of a consumer to say, hey, 60% of owner surrenders to shelters are wrong breed and medical issues. People don't realize when you go to a breeder and they want to meet you, you also engage in a contract that you can never, ever give that dog up. The dog must go back to them. So I'd like to know, how do we manage this online sales? Does the Humane Society have a plan? And I and, and Taz, I'd like to talk to you about, because you're more in the know about all the players, all these organizations. Is anybody coming together collectively to say, whoa, okay, we're dealing with pet stores, but this online is a whole other nightmare. Yeah, so there are uh, regular coalition meetings happening with uh, all of the major organizations that work on the puppy mill issue. So there's a lot of really good communications there. HSUS, ASPCA, Best Friends, Bailing Out Benji. And then there's a whole bunch of like state and local organizations too that are working on these issues like the Texas Humane Legislation Network and others. So there is a lot of collaboration going on that. And I see this kind of as a multi-step process First, we're dealing with the pet stores because they have some unique animal welfare problems. The long distance transport where they put 160 puppies into a cargo van and then they begin this journey that takes days to get to the end of the route because they're stopping at pet stores all along the way. That's probably the link in the chain that causes so many sick puppies because when you commingle 160 puppies from different baby animals, immature immune system, and let's be honest, they're not stopping every two hours to let those puppies out to do their business. So you know that that thing's getting filthy as the van goes along the routes and they're all breathing the same air. So if one's sick, a lot of the others get sick. And then they go live in a display case for an average of about two weeks during these key weeks in a puppy's development behaviorally and physically, unique problems. So our first step is to deal with the sale of puppies in pet stores, but we can't leave it there. You know, we, we have to keep going until there are no puppy mills. The online sales is a, is, a, is a big component, the outdoor sales, flea markets, and then regulations for the mills themselves so that the worst practices are abolished and we move towards a world with no puppy mills. It's just that the, the industry has been so intransigent that we've had to focus on the retail side of things. I'd love to really be focusing right on the mills themselves. So when the pet stores close in New York, the backyard breeders are still going to be in existence. Yeah. So and they could still sell online. Anybody could sell online. Yeah. Why? Why isn't that regulated the same way? What is the USDA doing? What happened with Goldie's Act? What happened with all these laws that have been in limbo in D.C.? So it was just, well, 2013 was actually a decade ago. Time flies. <laughs> like right. Yesterday, when we got the USDA to finally do, implement a rule, that's the terminology they use when an agency puts forth a new regulation without having to go through Congress. So they submitted a rule through the regulatory uh, authority that they have that required that any of the commercial dog breeders, the term they use, who sold over the internet sight unseen had to be regulated and inspected the same way as the, as the puppy mills who were selling through the pet stores. So that was 2013. Then we had the period of 
you know, 2017 to 2020, where the enforcement was just miserable, just miserable. Sonny Perdue was the Secretary of Agriculture, awful. Now, there is Goldie's Act. There's also a new one called Better Care for the Better Care for Animals Act, which would also approach the enforcement issue just from a slightly different way than Goldie's Act. And then the Puppy Protection Act, which would require, which would raise the standards of care for any USDA licensed puppy mill. So there's several bills in the Congress that would affect either enforcement or the standards of care for the dogs. We have a farm bill coming up. Every five years, the Congress does a farm bill where they reauthorize farm programs and uh, attach various other bits of legislation. We'd like to try to get something in there to make things better on the USDA end. And just so the viewers are wondering what the difference is between a USDA licensed puppy mill and a, another puppy mill that might be licensed at the state level, depending on what state they're in, but might not. Any breeder who has five or more female dogs and sell sight unseen. That means they don't meet the customer and they sell to a pet store. They don't meet the customer and they sell to a broker who then resells to a pet store and they don't meet the customer and they sell to a website. So anybody who has a single sale that's not face-to-face -face and has at least five or more breeding female dogs is supposed to be licensed by the USDA and inspected. A lot aren't, but that's, the, that's what the law says. No one follows law. These regulators aren't doing anything. And I'm a bit concerned when you talked about Petland, there is the Petland charities that are starting commercial breeding facilities and they want to self-regulate. And I was at an event that was in the pet industry and Mike Bober from the Pet Advisory Network and the team from Petland Charities were talking about self-regulating, how they're going to have these commercial breeding facilities where, where the animals will be taken care of properly. How do we know they're actually going to be taking care of these animals properly and they're not another one of these facilities that are essentially disgusting breeders, just like the CAFOs where animals are abused, the pigs are abused. Animal welfare is the worst in this country. How do we know? that they're really going to do what they say. This is a money-making project. You, you, you don't know. You don't know. Let me not put too fine of a point on that, but we have gone and taken photographs and video of some of the puppy mills that sell the pet land. Okay? Just, just 2020, 2021, even 2022. So we have brand new footage of a lot of places to sell there. Now, Petland on their various social media channels and on their websites, put out these videos that show dogs running through green lush fields. And they say, meet our breeders. And they have these tight shots that avoid showing where the dogs live and sleep and spend their day. And they'll just show like a few dogs are running through a field. And that's the, that's the image that they put forth. The places that we've visited, and this has been universally true with every single one we've sent an investigator to, look very, very different. Dogs in dilapidated cages, dogs are just spinning in circles in some tight confined area. Then we get the inspection reports and we see that there's been all sorts of, you know, illnesses or sanitation problems that weren't addressed. So I don't have any confidence in any sort of self-regulation by the industry. You, you have to have an independent agency 
a government agency, not one that's funded by the industry going in there and looking at things. But even then we see that you know, unless you get this language just precisely right, you might have an administration that comes in that doesn't really care about this as a priority and the enforcement drops. So it goes back to, back to the consumer side, both educating people on how to humanely acquire dogs so they don't support a puppy mill, and then also passing laws that are far easier to enforce that prohibit the sale of puppies in pet stores, that kind of thing. Very easy to enforce that because you either walk in and the store either has puppies or they don't. Other than the, the usual Sarah McLaughlin ad, I really have never seen anything in television, on social media, from the Humane Society or the ASPCA or Best Friends or the Bissell Foundation, all the groups that go in and collect these animals who are being rescued from the puppy mills. I have not seen any PSAs that are directed to the public saying your purchases are impacting the welfare of these animals. These animals exist. These puppy mills exist because you, the dumbass public, are choosing to buy online from pet stores. Why aren't you guys coming at it a little differently? Do you think your marketing campaigns are, I don't know, I think it's a little disjointed. You have all these groups who are all doing great things and you see the end result, animals being rescued. In between, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of money being exchanged. What am I missing here in the way that, in the way you guys are managing the process? Well, we don't have the same advertising budget as like, say, for example, Procter & Gamble, but we do run ads. In fact, HSUS is the only organization I know of that's been running a lot of TV ads in select markets that are exposing where pet store puppies come from. Like Missouri? We've done, we haven't done Missouri. We've been doing the areas where there are a lot of stores that sell puppies. So for example, and we started with a big advertising campaign in Ohio in 2021. So Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton are three areas that have a lot of Petland stores and Petland is based in Ohio. So we did a poll before the ads ran and we did a poll after the ads ran. And I'm gonna keep the numbers private because it's proprietary information that in our strategy. But we did a pretty large ad campaign in the fall of 2021. And I can tell you that it moved public opinion about 10 points, whichever way you ask the question about puppies and pet stores. So that was pretty significant. Since then, we've done ads in Manatee County, Florida, Wichita, Kansas, Houston, Texas. And then we did some ads in Tallahassee, Florida, and Indianapolis, Indiana. These were ads that were exposing efforts by Petland to pass state legislation in those two states to take away city council's right to pass pest ordinances. And we, we were successful in holding those off. So we've started to move towards an advertising strategy, but our budget doesn't allow for national buys. And if you're in New York City, A, you know, it's a little pricey. B, since you've got the ban coming into effect in late 2024, you probably won't see anything from us, but some people in other markets are. But we have to be selective about where we put the ads because, again, you know, Procter & Gamble's just got so much better of uh, an advertising budget. than I know, do. I know. Advertising on Tide versus that's test on, tested on animals versus. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and John, let me have a question. Didn't you tell me that Petland just leased a bunch of space? They have a new location they're trying to open up in Louisville. They're looking at a suburb of Tucson. They're looking at several places. And it really is mind-boggling because now seven okay. states have prohibited the sale of puppies in pet stores in about 475 localities. More states will pass legislation to rid the sale of puppies in pet stores. There is no future in this business model. On the flip side, Pet Business Magazine runs a top 25 pet retailers article every year. One year they added numbers 26 through 30. I can tell you the top 30 pet store chains in North America, only one sells puppies. That's Petland. Wolfgang Bakery has lapped them. Pet Supplies mm -hmm. Plus has lapped them. PSP actually does sell small animals. PSP does sell small animals. They sell small animals, but I'm talking specifically here about puppies. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that I question the business acumen of the people on the Petland Board of Directors and in their executive, in the, you know, in their executive suite, because mm -hmm. they're hanging on to this outdated business model that is getting banned in state after state, and yet they're doubling down on it. Now, what, yeah. does it what does it show on their profits? Well, we only have a little bit of limited information about their revenue because mm -hmm. they put out a franchise disclosure document every year. We can acquire that. 2020 and 2021 were lucrative. That was because of the pandemic and so many people were buying puppies. Last year, they lost $4 million. Now, 2021, they were in the black by $9 million. 2022, they were in the red by $4 million. That's a swing of $13 million. So, Elizabeth, when you point out the fact that they're still leasing prop place and wanting to expand it, it's mind-boggling. What are they thinking? Uh, they, when I met their CEO the first time, he told me that they were coming up on their 50th anniversary, and he wanted to plan for the next 50 years. Well, I would submit <laughs> if he's watching this, if he's planning for the next 50 years, he needs to change the business model. Yeah. Well, with it, with the internet and the and the sale of online puppies, I think that you're going to end up with a bunch of people that sit in a boardroom trying to justify their salaries. I don't know how they do their market research to even target opening up a pet land, but this online industry is where people are going. Well, and let's get back to what you just said about how they select a place. I don't know how they select a place, but I have my suspicion. I don't think that they are doing market research and saying, hmm, we need to open up store in Paducah, Kentucky. I don't I don't think they're doing that. I think that they're just at putting on their website, contact us if you want to buy a franchise. And if someone contacts them, they just sell them a franchise because they're going to get paid a franchise fee. Probably whether that franchise opens or not is pretty lucrative. And then when the franchise does open, they have to send Petland 4.5% of their revenue every week. Mm -hmm. All right. So even if they're operating at a loss, so if that line corporate, they could care less. You open up a store, operate a loss for two years, but you still send that 4% in or 4.5%, whatever it is, every week. What does corporate care? They don't. They don't. They don't. Is Petland Charities part of the Petland? Okay, so Ed Sayers, who was the head of the ASPCA at one time and also an, a breeder, 
is the head of Petland Charities. And they're the ones who are actually going to be doing these commercial breeding facilities. What's the difference between a commercial breeder versus a puppy mill? Is there a difference, John? There's not a difference per se. I mean, a commercial breeder would just be any large scale, high volume breeder for profit. Now, you could have a theoretical argument as every commercial breeder a puppy mill, and and you certainly can have, you know, a place that has 20 dogs but 10 staff, and each staffer spends all day with two of the dogs. That'd be a commercial operation. Maybe it wouldn't count as a puppy mill. The question is, can you have a commercial breeding operation that's profitable with standards of care that are so good that the dogs thrive? I mean, keep in mind that even dogs in animal shelters that's supposed to be temporary holding. Even in a well-run animal shelter, if you just spend a year in a shelter, your condition is going to deteriorate. You're going to deteriorate mentally. So when you see people say, is there a difference between a commercial breeder or a puppy mill? I mean, sometimes they're euphemistic. And then there's, of course, you know, the small scale, you know, responsible breeder. Those are the kind of people that, that we like who are health screening the dogs before breeding them. You know, the, the dogs live in the house. They, you know, they, they take back a dog who, you know, doesn't succeed with their new family. That They're breeding for breed integrity and they love the animal. They love the breed. They love the, they love what the breed represents. Absolutely. There's good breeders out there. So this takes me to the AKC. They are fighting constantly any kind of new laws that is trying to stop um, animal welfare, new animal welfare act. Why are they battling it? What do they have to gain? They're actively working to keep the puppy mills going. It makes no sense to me. And why should people believe the AKC if they are doing that? Well, it makes sense from one perspective. When you think about who has influence with the direction the AKC takes. So my grandmother back in the eighties bred pugs litter maybe once a year kind of thing okay. who do you think has more influence in the akc my grandmother who bred like one litter a year caused maybe five dogs a year to be registered at the akc or some puppy mill in missouri who's causing a thousand dogs to be registered with them every year that's the problem in the last year we have seen the akc oppose a range of animal protection bills though going beyond puppy mills They've opposed bills to criminalize the possession of animal fighting paraphernalia because they would there would be these treadmills that dog fighters would condition dogs on. And they'd say, well, some responsible breeders have treadmills. We're going to oppose that. Okay, well, you know what? There's such thing as a crowbar, okay? I have a crowbar. I need it sometimes to do work around the house. Other people use a crowbar to break into a, a building or, or attack someone. Uh -huh. It's all about the context in which you possess the crowbar. So if you've got a crowbar in the trunk of your car next to a, uh, a TV with a serial number scratched off, you're probably going to be arrested for possession of burglary tools. So law enforcement smart enough to be able to understand the context of a device. But yet the ATC just gives cover to the dogfighters by just having blanket opposition to these bills. They opposed a bill in New York. They would have banned breeders from debarking the dogs, which is something that sometimes people have done by you know, shoving a tube down the dog's throat to crush their vocal cords so that maybe the neighbors aren't disturbed by them having 30 dogs. They've opposed legislation to prevent people from leaving dogs in hot cars. 
because they said, well, someone at a dog show might have the dog in the car while they're setting up. I mean, all of these <laughs> things you, you can have reasonable exemptions for, but they just give blanket opposition to these bills rather than identifying legitimate concerns and figuring out how to write an amendment to take care of a legitimate concern. And it's, it's disappointing because they call themselves the dog's champion. They're really the puppy mill's champion, but it doesn't have to be that way. They could change directions. They could be on the good side. Wow. They can be, but they make too much money being on the side that they're on. Okay. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with, with Mike Bober from the Pet Advisory Network. And uh, yeah, the question, I, and he was very kind and uh, very forthright with me. And yeah, my question was, how come you guys can't eliminate these puppy mills and, and get rid of um, these bad, bad apples? What he said was that it's an all or nothing conversation when there's conversations with the Humane Society or with other animal right advocacy groups. Is that true? Are you guys just no puppy sales at all? Or are you okay with good breeders? What are the facts from your side? We're, we're very much in favor of responsible breeders. We don't want dogs to go extinct. We don't want more dogs bred than their available homes for. We don't want puppy mills, and we don't want breed standards that lead to unhealthy dogs, like you know, breed standards that require a dog have a very flat face, for example. But we're very much in favor of good, healthy puppies, you know, good, healthy breeders that care about responsible care. But I'm gonna say something. Mike Bober, he he is a nice guy. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna tell you about a meeting we had at the White House. He was he was the only person that came with the pet industry contingency that was actually hopeful for the cause mm -hmm. of animal welfare in this discussion. So in July of 2018, Laura Trump sets up a meeting to discuss puppy mills. I went to it, I was there. Various other leadership from some animal protection groups were there, as well as a big contingency from the pet industry. That included Mike Bober, that included the CEO of Petland, it included two major puppy brokers, and then one commercial breeder. Now, the Petland CEO had told every reporter and every city council he could get in front of that he was for a federal solution, that he was for reform of the USDA standards of care for the dogs. Well, it served his purpose to tell city councils who were considering an ordinance that would stop one of his stores from selling puppies to say that. When we got to the, to the White House and he was in there, Kellyanne Conway was there, several members of Congress and some high-ranking officials from the USDA, he didn't say anything about higher standards of care for the dogs. He spent the entire time bashing rescues, and one of the puppy brokers he spoke, he brought with him spoke out against raising the standards of care for the dogs. Now, Mike Bober, to his credit, said something to the contrary. He said he thought that the USDA, I can't remember how he worded it, but he, he wanted, basically he was saying that they should have standards of care that are high enough that having a USDA license actually means something. So I, I appreciated what he said, but the other people in the industry showed no desire to find any common ground. We were there not expecting the perfect wall. We were there not expecting to get everything. We were, we were expecting, though, that there would be some improvement for the dogs. So we were ready to sit down and talk and have progress, not expecting perfection. Unfortunately, everybody from the pet industry contingent except Mike Bober 
sabotage that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I could see that. He's very, you know, middle ground, sees both sides. I do appreciate um, that he's open to speaking about it. Just what is happening, though, is still up in the air. And there's still support for pet land charities and the commercial breeders within the pet industry. So this is where I'm very confused as to what side is the pet industry on as a whole? What are they doing to stop the suffering? I mean, is it all greenwashing, which is something I see nonstop with the pet food manufacturers, you know, making claims they're using humane meat. Yeah, come on. Right. Yeah, let's not go there. So yeah, I I wonder, you know, with Liz, she has her app and it's promoting it, people getting animals that are right for their lifestyles. And then you have Best Friend Society, ASPCA, you have all these organizations. Are you guys doing anything with each other or is it segmented? I know I brought this up before. How are you guys working together and is one supporting the other? Well, if you're speaking about us working with Liz, I just had the opportunity and the pleasure to meet Liz on a phone call just about a week and a half ago. So I'm expecting that, that we'll have a lot of good collaborative efforts going forward. But the other organizations, we have you know regular contact. When there's certain campaigns underway, there's weekly phone calls. You know, there's a lot of coalition work. Oftentimes, co-branded fact sheets. So. I'd say that I think people would be surprised at how good the level of collaboration is now among all the major groups. It hadn't always been that way. Uh, I've been involved in animal advocacy now for 34 years, and it definitely has not always been that way. But uh, I think that there is some pretty good collaboration going. And I, I personally like all of my counterparts in every one of the uh, uh, other or major organizations. Hadn't always been able to say that. <laughs> I'll say that now. I, I, I actually like them all. <laughs> when Hands to Paws just launched a campaign, we now have a spokes dog who was purchased online. And the owner was honest enough to come forward and say, I love my dog, but I should never have purchased online. I met her in the parking lot. I'm hoping that Stripe will be able to reach people, even if it reaches one person and it saves one person from going online. It's difficult when you're seeing all of these French bulls, all of these, and these are backyard breeders. These are people that are literally creating hydrocephalus puppies and cleft palate puppies and dumping them in the shelters, it, there's got to be a dialogue eventually with the Humane Society. Well, and there are other sections at HSUS that work on some of these other aspects of dogs in society. So for example, we have a, a, a whole program that we do with Maddie's Fund and the Ad Council which for years was the shelter pet project to drive adoptions to shelters and now has a heavy focus on keeping pets and families together, AKA keeping dogs out of the shelters by finding ways to help people keep their dogs by making housing more accessible for families that have dogs and that kind of thing. So uh, we have our Pets for Life program. This is a program that goes into underserved communities where there are people with no resources, and we give them free vaccinations, free spay neuter, 
you know, various services like that. So that because because some of these people are having to choose between you know the health of their dog and putting food on the table, and and so we've got you know this this whole program that tries to find ways to make it so they don't have to make that choice. You know, get them the resources. So there's a lot of work that's being done to take care of you know all these different aspects of things that affect dogs in society. But Elizabeth, you said something about the animal shelters, and I think you were alluding to the fact that they're in crisis right now. Mm -hmm. After years of the number of dogs entering shelters and being euthanized in shelters declining, it's gone back up sharply in the last year, year and a half. Why? There's a lot of complex reasons for that. Some of it stems from the fact that they, they don't have the same volunteer base they had before COVID for adoption events. There's a veterinary shortage, which affects shelters and their ability to get dogs spayed or neutered before they're adopted. But there's also the fact that I think there's probably been a saturation of dogs that filled homes during COVID. So adoptions are down. If they're not keeping up, more dogs are coming into the shelters now than are coming out alive. And so there are a lot of complex societal reasons for that. And we have to work through all of them. It's also cats. We have to be cognizant yeah. that a lot of people are dumping their cats and they're unfixed and they're breeding. TNR programs in New York anyway are horrible. The, the Department of Health in New York is one of the worst with animal care and control. It's sad what's happening here. The, the small rescue groups are devastated in New York taking in sick, sick, dying cats because they're being dumped, adopted as kittens and the shelters don't have the vets to actually spay neuter. <laughs> And yet one year ago, there was a major push by some people in the pet industry to say that there was a dog shortage. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, I remember. I saw the articles. I was livid. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, obviously that was a short-lived campaign. They wanted to drive people towards more of these, you know, commercial side of the industry for acquiring dogs and cats, I guess. It was kind of funny. I spoke with one of the people who was a big driver of that messaging or that pet shortage messaging. And this is this was just last year. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, in 2009, someone who you're aligned with said that there'd be a dog shortage in five years. And he's trying to make the case that, you know, there are people on your side think there's a dog shortage. Now the call got cut short, so I didn't get to say this, but I was thinking, well, that would have been 2014. What happened? It never happened. Right. <laughs> that, that dog shortage never happened. No, the, the greenwashing of the pet industry is just, unbelievable with with foods with products with supplements and with animal welfare yeah it, it's it's just non-stop it's frustrating i am scared sometimes but there's good people in the industry too oh, so when you talk about mike bober the pet advocacy network for example mm -hmm. i kind of feel some sympathy because he's in a he's a, he's the leader of a trade group for retailers yeah most of the retailers don't sell puppies Many of them endorse efforts to stop the sale of puppies in pet stores. And so he's getting torn from, from all directions. And that's just how the, the pet industry is. In 2019, we went to Global Pet Expo, which I think everybody knows is a big trade mm -hmm. show. And we gave out 1,000 blue tote bags that said about puppy mills. And we got rid of them all in like a day and a half. I mean, everybody was carrying those tote bags around the conference. And, and then there were a handful of people that own stores that sell puppies that were coming up and throwing timber tantrums. It's okay. <laughs> but it's an industry, it's not like the fur industry, for example, where 
I think that whole industry just needs to be done away with, right? Killing animals just make burkos gone. Get rid of it. No more. That industry is different. And there are a lot of people in the industry that love animals, that have animal welfare as like their number one priority. And we, we try to build alliances with them because they're part of all the, they're part of the solution for all the problems that dogs face. A lot of these stores that allow rescues to come do adoption events. That's mm -hmm. a win-win for the rescue, for the dogs, and for the stores. Foster cats in their stores. They have cat catteries in their stores where they're fostering cats. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of good people in the industry. I mean, I, I know that, like, you know, I'm mostly talking about some of the bad apples, but but I want to tip my hat to the, the, the bigger half. You're right. You're absolutely right. I just get very frustrated because they're so, the other side is so loud. They are so loud. Very, very. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, he will probably <laughs> yell at me. Um, he'll probably get pissed at me, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> well, the American Kennel Club doesn't like hands to paws because it's free and they charge $249 to recommend a dog. Well, so they're not, they don't like me at all. So it's, you know, what are you going to do? And you're providing a really good service. I mean, you know, they should be celebrating it. But, you know, it does cut, it does pinch one of those revenue streams, I guess, though. That's interesting. Yeah, that's true, Liz. They really don't like you. They didn't even want you to have a booth at one of their events because you have this free app that helps people get animals from yep. the right reputable breeders. Legacy breeders. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. How could we change the way things are being done? I mean, the public has to take initiative and stop buying. So what are your thoughts about this, John? Well, I think that the legislation that prohibits the sale of puppies and pet stores is extremely important as step one, because we've got to stop one, of the, and that's that's low-hanging fruit, right? That's low-hanging fruit. We've got to stop one of these, the worst sales hours. When the pandemic started back in 2020, I remember seeing an article, and there was a woman who quoted this article in New York. She said she understood that pet store puppies almost always come from puppy mills, but she had to go get one to keep her son busy. Yeah. And so that, that does point of education. I think we educate as many people as we can, and then we mobilize them into a political force that gets the reforms that we need. Because we're not going to win everybody over, but if we get the right laws, then the animals will be protected. And that's my theory. Very simple. But I think you you target your PSAs, right. right? So you so but New York is number three as an offender on the horrible hundred. New York shut up is number three. So I understand it's an expensive market, but you know we need a campaign with a celebrity or a person who says, hey. Do your research. Don't buy a dog online. Make sure it's from a, the right source. You know, if the Humane Society reached out, I'm sure, to a lot of these people to do a, a PSA for free and try to get it out in a larger market. Because I can tell you, in the, on the East Coast, it is doodle denial. Oh, yeah, the doodles. Every, there's one across the street from me. Uh, but I do want to say one thing about the horrible hundred. That's that's the list of the puppy mills themselves. And so where sure. those puppies were sold could be anywhere. They could have been New York stores. They could have been, you know, a store in Arkansas. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know why you why an Arkansas store would go all the way to New York to get a puppy. We've got plenty of puppy mills there. But yeah, I just 
clarifying that point. Hey, listen, if there's any, you know, my, my cousin is an actress and I've got, I've gotten her to do some things for us. You know, she, her name was Jennifer Goodwin and she was in some shows like Big Love and sure, yeah, a couple others. So she's done some things for us, but if there's anybody watching that's passionate about this issue, we would, we would love to have them speaking out using their platform. That's um, right. It doesn't even have to be PSA. It can be a social media post because, you know, if someone puts something on TikTok, just, just sitting there, just like on the whim on Friday night after a glass of wine, it, 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 it can reach a million people. And I think that's where hands to pause and even no lease for pause, trying to get that large market of brokers and management companies, uh, the Cushman and Wakefields to commit. It's a, it's a slow process, but it's got to be a creative process and try to attack this industry from different angles and I think cutting them off at the knees by trying to go after that retail sector is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because 80% of the USDA licensed puppy mills are in seven states. This is a point I made earlier. Those seven states are states where big agribusiness has all the power. And to get an extra inch of space for the dogs in Arkansas would be like pushing a boulder up the hill. But all those puppies bred in Arkansas have to be sold somewhere. The retail side is the way to go, both in terms of educating people about how to humanely acquire a dog or acquire a dog from a humane source, and in terms of legislative efforts, you know, to cut off retail sales outlets for puppy mills. I have a dumb question, John. Why is the USDA still in charge of oversight of, I mean, they don't do a good job. Why? Why yeah. are they overseeing living animals in any capacity? No, it's a fair question. And I think it just has to do with the fact that there's not at this point time a, a division of the federal government where they would have like veterinarians and people with that kind of expertise that to have that kind of oversight in texas the commercial breeder law is under a licensing and depart like a licensing department regulation or something i can't remember the name of the agency it's not the ag department in texas tennessee had a commercial breeder law that sunset it. It was like a five-year thing or something like that. And it, it expired. And it was under the health department, I believe. But almost everywhere, it ends up under the agriculture department just because they have the kind of the infrastructure for, you know, dealing with entities that raise animals, I guess. It's not ideal. There's a lot of discussion about how there should be somebody else. But the federal government's kind of hard because, you know, we're $30 trillion in debt. Maybe we should stop subsidizing big ag. Yeah, exactly. That would be a good way. It's it's hard to get like a new a new thing built right now in the current. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be spending more as we have uh, more climate emergencies coming. So it's challenging. It's very very challenging on the federal level. So potential for new pandemics because of animals being treated poorly or CAFOs, all that is still going to be under the USDA. I mean, with yeah. animal welfare. So. Right. You know, I'm seeing, you see videos, undercover videos done with pigs being thrown around, baby pigs oh. being thrown around. I mean, they're exploding physically. And these people that are working in those facilities, I feel like they're probably mentally ill because of the environment they're in. So it is a systemic problem that the government's overseeing. I mean, Liz has a great idea about, and I'm sure there are lots of great ideas, but her system, what she recommends, recommends to me and what we talk about all the time is such it will bring money into the government 
because if you want to breed, then you have to pay for actual cages. I mean, Liz, you got to talk about your your idea. Does, have you ever spoken to John about this? You can, you can think, talk about it. It's I think we sort of, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Dave, with Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver, and Charles Grodin. So he called in Charles Grodin, his friend, because he had to balance the budget in the White House. And his friend drives down in his jalopy car and he balances the budget. I, I've actually come up with an infrastructure that would make money for the government and it would be a brand new department. And that department would oversee every person and every animal that is bred to be sold to the public. And I even broke it down by, by department where you have a veterinarian person, where you've got people that make sure, whether it's horses, goats, reptiles, dogs, cats, the abuse that goes on in the reptile industry is, is absolutely horrifying. So the idea is you would be buying the housing for the animals because housing, I know John, in some of those inspection reports, it's chicken wire and boards yeah. where if you wanted to breed an animal, you have to buy the housing from this department. You would have to buy the quality of food from this department. No one's talking about all these breeding facilities that are giving animals the bare bones of food in a PVC pipe with a hole cut in it. So there is a way that the government could be making a lot of money. But who wants to hear from me, right? It's, it's one person who says, wait a minute, I can actually make you money. And even with even sh even short of that, high fines for the people who are violating the laws. When when we've done bills at the state level to set up a state regulatory apparatus for commercial dog breeding, that the fiscal note, the cost of the government is always a big issue. One point eight. If you if you do more than a you know a citation with zero fine, maybe the thirtieth time you cite them, it's a twenty dollar fine. You actually have some real penalties from the get-go. You get some revenue coming in to offset the cost of paying for these inspectors. And, and but, but then, Elizabeth, what you're talking about, of course, is, a, is like a whole much more grand thing. But even, even the bare minimum of enforcement would go some way towards alleviating that. I'm just curious. So if I want to get into the breeding business, what is the USDA? What do they charge you? What is the cost to get a license? Oh, I think it's low. It's a few hundred bucks, I think. Um, I, haven't, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years. When they redid the licensing in 2020, they did a rule that changed the licensing process. Now you get a three-year license and they changed the fee. And I can't remember what it was, if it was like a hundred bucks or 10 or 50 bucks or something like that. It, it, it's, it's in that ballpark, but it's, it's not high. It's not high at all. And then what happens after you pay your license fee, they come out and do a pre-license inspection. Now this pre-license inspection is announced. So they know you're, you know, you know, person that's getting the license knows the inspector's coming and you can fail that and reapply. I think twice, I think they'll come out three times. So there's labor cost for someone coming out and doing an inspection as many as three times, driving out to the rural area from wherever their office is to do it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then they'll have unannounced inspections after that. Now, if the if the puppy mill is compliant with the bare minimum laws and they're not getting citations, they might only get inspected like once a year. But if they're getting cited, then they're going to have more frequent inspections. So there's going to be more days where that staffer has to be paid, his gas has to be paid for, all that to go out there. So that initial fee that someone pays, that's gobbled up immediately. I really think they need to have more fines for the people who can't even follow the law. And the, and the minimum, let's just so people listening understand, we're talking about regulations that say you can keep a dog in a cage only six inches longer than her body. That, that's all the space that's required. She can stand on that wire floor in her entire life. You just have to make sure the poop doesn't build up in the cage. If she gets sick, you're, you're supposed to get her medical treatment. But that, that's pretty much the extent of it. Who can't follow that? I mean, if you can't comply with that, so, come on, that, that, that's insane. And so I just think the fine should be there too. I think what's going to happen is people who listen to this are going to become incensed. Yeah. Because when you hear it and you realize how hard is it, I think people have to remember you're dealing with the mentality, right? If you are a farmer or you raise chickens, pigs, and beef, for human consumption, you're not attached to them. Those people, that mentality is the same with raising puppies, mm -hmm. except you're selling a, a living being that could live for 15 years. So I think it's the mindset of the people that are breeding these dogs. And, you know, John, I have to tell you with the app, I've been to the UK, I've been to Crufts, I've been to Canada, and Canada and the UK was shocked that the US still has pet stores across the board. I think the USDA is antiquated. Whether we fight this, I, if at some point, no matter what your efforts are or, or best friends or Benji, if we don't attack right at the top and the top is the USDA, we all are gonna be trying to fill up a barrel with a cup with no bottom. And that's that's how I really feel. We're we're fighting this battle, but it's really the USDA who holds the cards. Yeah, they could do so much. They should do so much. We've got members of Congress that have been sending them letters. We have regular meetings and we call them out in the media quite often. Well, I tell you that 2017 to 2020 was really the rough years over at USDA. I went to a meeting that they did with representatives of all the animal protection organizations that interact with them at all. I, I, I don't want to go back into the blow by blow of how the meeting went. Let's just say it was tense. <laughs> now, since then, enforcement's gotten a little bit closer to what it was in the Obama administration, which was okay, not great, but it was okay. Still, you know, I don't know if it's quite gotten to that point, but there have been a few, a few entities shut down in Iowa, not necessarily by the USDA, though. The three different USDA licensed breeders have recently been shut down in Iowa. Now, Daniel Gingrich was one that did oh, yeah. inspections that went to the Department of Justice. But then there was Henry Summers and Lauren Yoder, and they were dealt with by local law enforcement. It, it is an indictment, I think, of the USDA and the regulatory structure when sheriff 
is shutting down some of these places. Mm-hmm. And some of it, I think, is depends on the politics of who's in charge at the time. Some of it has to do with the process of adjudicating these citations is antiquated. You know, they, they need some reforms on the, the process for when these when these citations are appealed and go before a judge, for example. But there's definitely a lot that needs to be changed. I'm fearful. I'm fearful for dogs as a species because it is so out of control. We're destroying its legal animal cruelty. Well, and, and you know, I, I feel the same way. And you may be thinking about one or two specific fears. And I might be thinking about slightly different fears. One thing that really scares me is these large puppy mills that produce so many of the puppies. What, what, how healthy are the genetics? I mean, the, the veterinary businesses, there's a veterinary shortage, but I swear it seems like there are dogs with more behavioral problems, more emotional problems, and more physical problems than ever before. I can't mm-hmm. quantify that with data. It's a feeling. But it, it makes sense, though, when you take a puppy from a stressed out mother dog living in a cage, put him in a truck to be driven all the way across the country, to then go spend two weeks at that, that point in his life that's so key development and to spend two weeks in a glass display case, you, you know, you can't blame the dog if the dog ends up being a little off after yeah. all that. And, and before, uh, that uh, Rodney, have you just saying maximum of four years? I didn't even, I didn't look any further into it, but I said, well, Frenchies are living a maximum of four years. And most of them are coming from puppy mills. So I don't know how real that is. I mean, he's a, he's a celebrity in the pet industry. However, it makes me think that all the people that I work with who, who come to me, they have animals at age two, three, four. They're all doodle mixes that have chronic skin conditions. And they can't get appointments with vets for six, seven months. What are we doing to the veterinarians and the veterinary hospital? We are creating havoc. Oh, big time. And there's a a strong push being made to try to get more students going to vet school, to get more vet schools. We need more vets. But Taz, I think that you're pointing to approaching it from the other side, healthier dogs, Mm -hmm. so that they don't have, you know, a wait list or they're not working on you know, 12 hours every single day to be able to treat everybody that, that has an emergency situation. Why do we have so many, so many sick animals, especially a couple of years after the pandemic? Well, right? We're seeing that age group is just popping up with severe, weird diseases. So I mean, we're creating this problem. And, and I think and I think that's where the backyard breeding And when I say backyard breeding, these are the people that are taking Chinese Cresteds and putting them with pugs and dachshunds, and they're keeping the cute dog and they're dumping the rest at a shelter, or they're taking a dapple and a dapple, breeding it, and now they've got deaf and blind, and they're dumping them at shelters. But you know, it's also the large USDA places. They're doing the same thing, the same thing. I mean, it's funny when the AKC comes out and opposes our bills on the uh, pet stores. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, well, you know, these pet stores have all these purebred puppies. 
No, not really. Uh, no, it's designer dogs. Yes, that Chinese crested that's mixed with the, you know, the Shih Tzu or whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah. And they say, well, we, we just the pet stores are selling like the top 10 purebreds and then a bunch of mixes. You know, when, when we were working the New York bill, one of the legislative aides said that she wanted every family to be able to get any breed they wanted, like like she had done when she was a kid. And I said, well, what kind of dog did you get? And she said, a Chinese crested terrier. I'm like, well, I, I don't see a lot of those in pet stores. I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I don't, in fact, I don't know if I've ever seen one of those in a pet store at all. No, it's it's Chinese crescents of French bulls mixed together. The palm skis, it's all of those. And, and when you look at National Mill Rescue and you look at the dogs they're rescuing, it's Australian shepherds, it's doodle mixes, it's huskies, it's, it's all the animals that they're mixing. These are all the parents that they're rescuing and it's it's horrific. I got to tour National Mill Dog Rescue a few years ago. We did a team retreat to Colorado and we we all went to the tour of the facility and it was a really great place for people who aren't familiar with the organization. They have relationships with some of the owners of these facilities who will agree to give retired breeding dogs over to them as opposed to, you know, some of these, a lot of these puppy mills will just kill the dogs, but they're, mm -hmm. but they're places that'll give them the dogs and then they, they have a really nice setup, you know, to try to get these dogs nursed back to good health and adopted to good homes. I really enjoyed visiting their facility. Yeah, they attend the, which I never heard of. I had no idea that they would go and auction. So these puppy mills would take a dog and be like, eh, they should go to an auction and say, yeah, I'll buy it. Let me, let me see if I can get one litter out of it. It's like moving their stock out so they can now stock what people are asking for, which are the doodles and the palm skis and the, you know, you hear that they rescued 150 dogs. How can the USDA allow someone to have 150 dogs is beyond me. Wait, wait, can I ask a question before you go on, John? Now, Liz is talking about this and then I see all these rescue efforts that are done, all these mass, these, these people going in and shutting down or not even shutting down, but rescuing animals from puppy mills. Do they Groups that are helping rescue from the puppy mills, do they have have to sign any kind of non-disclosure agreements to not expose who they who they are taking the animals from? I would say that with National Mill Dog Rescue, I don't know that they have an NDA, but they want to be able to keep saving these dogs. And so they're not going to burn somebody that's giving them the dogs. They're playing a role in this larger effort to save puppy mill dogs. So they're going to take retired breeders and get them to good homes. And then organizations like ours are doing our sort of advocacy, which is a different type of advocacy. I think they both have value. Now, then there are other instances where law enforcement goes in and seizes a whole lot of dogs. And then the law enforcement will work with groups like HSUS, local animal shelters, local rescues. And there's no, there's no agreement with the puppy mill owner at all. The puppy mill mm -hmm. owner's been arrested and is dealing with that. There might be an MOU with the sheriff's department on how things are handled, but that but but the puppy mold gets no say in that. Why not expose them? Why not just shut them down? Why well, are they allowed to continue breeding just because they're handing over a dog to National Mill Rescue? 
why are they allowed to breed when they have commercial breeding facilities that are toxic to animals? Well, look at the state like Arkansas, for example. One of the main, no state regulation at all. No state commercial breeder, nothing. Nothing at the state level. It's only USDA for Arkansas. Now you go to a place like Missouri, there is a state regulation. A whole bunch of animal protection groups, including HSUS, had to put a ballot initiative up. We had to gather hundreds of thousands of signatures and win an election in 2010. The legislature then diluted what the voters had approved, but we still had some framework in place. So I'm sure that if one of these groups sees conditions that fall below those baseline regulations, they, they probably will report it. I'm not asking them about it because I don't want them to you know, be in a situation where they lose access to saving those dogs. But I, but I do know some of the people involved in those efforts, and they do have the best interest of the dogs at, at heart. I can tell you that. No, of course they do. And that's why they're doing what they do. It's just shutting these, even though there's no regulation, outing them so they can't advertise online. I guess they can come back out and and remarket themselves under a different name. I mean, if it's the Wild West, they can do whatever the hell they want, I guess. Right? There's a major puppy broker out of Ohio that has a, a long-standing relationship with Petland. And if that guy hadn't changed his name a half dozen times, then, then let the Lord strike me down right now. I mean, I tell you, changing the name constantly of that business. So it's like the mafia of what, using uh, animals. I mean, it's just, everything is you know, dirty. dirty. It's a dirty, it's a dirty, it's a dirty industry. Yeah. A lot of problems there, but you know what? I tell you, this is one issue though, where public opinion is pretty strong. We've done a lot of polling. Now in puppy mills, everybody is against puppy mills, whether they uh, realize that purchase they may have made sports puppy mill or not. That's a whole different issue. Now, it was a little harder for people to connect the dots between puppy mills and some of the retail sales outlets. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that, and we've done a lot of research on this. All we have to do is calmly make our case with the facts and tell the stories of some of these dogs and, and we prevail. On the pet store issue, for example, right out of the gate, about 40% of people have an idea that there's probably something wrong with this. They don't know exactly what. They don't always connect to puppy mills, but there's something that seems off. There's about 40% that think it's totally fine, and there's about 20% that don't have an opinion. After the best arguments from the, the companies like Petland are presented, and then all the best arguments from the animal protection groups are presented, the numbers shift dramatically in our favor and in the dog's favor. And we end up with about 75% wanting an end to the sale of puppies and pet stores. Online, people, you know, there, there's enough people that don't make the connection that they're keeping these places in business. So I'll say that the fields are fertile when it comes to public education on that issue. Because there are a lot of people, though, they're thinking, you have no idea where that dog came from? Eh, are you sure that place looks like the picture on the website? So we have the right ingredients here to put together a really great recipe. We just have to keep mixing the batter and get it in the oven and get it done. And I think that's where, Taz, you and I spoke about. People seem to be ruled by social media. Mm -hmm. And I think if you had a campaign that was free, 
anyone who's an animal lover, who's a social media influencer or an actor or a musician came and said, hey, do your research. People would think twice, but no one is talking about it. No one is talking about it. And, and I think that's what's making it worse. I don't think we can keep up. Well, and, and I think a campaign from the um, Humane Society, yeah. even if it was free, just getting your cousin, who I'm very familiar with in, her, in the work she's done, someone to say, do the right thing, get the right breed from the, the right resource. The rescues that I've spoken to, a lot of those dogs have medical issues and they have medical issues because they came from a puppy mill. And it takes more than one major person too, because sometimes I wish, I think about like that presidential campaign in 1984, you know, Reagan versus Mondale. And I think about how, boy, I sure wish I could have run that campaign. You've got three TV channels that have news and then PBS, you got a couple of wire services. So you can get in the Associated Press or UPI, you get in every daily newspaper and you got like three magazines, right? Time, news, and U.S. News Rule Report. How could you not win in an environment like that, right? Mm -hmm. Now we've got Twitter or X, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Reddit, uh, you know, TikTok, TikTok. I mean, I'm not even on that one. 500 streaming. I mean, it's such a diffuse environment. So we've got to be getting it from everywhere. We've got to be everywhere. Hmm. And, and there are a lot of celebrities who love their animals, right? I mean, Broadway barks. You have a whole group of Broadway actors and actresses who do an event every year. If every day one of them did a post talking about why you shouldn't buy an animal from online, from yeah. a pet store, that just every single day, one of them posts that. It's a beginning of a big picture, a big picture win. And we do ask, we do outreach to a lot of celebrities. I tell you, it's just a, it's not as easy as it, as it seems. I, I'm sure. I know we can talk about it until we're blue. They're like, yeah, we'll get to it. And it's behind them before it's, yeah, yeah. They, they've forgotten that everyone's scattered. So it's a shame. It's a shame. So let's, let's try to change things. John, thank you so much for doing this. Want to leave the audience with anything? Other than don't buy an animal from home life? Well, I, I think people need to get involved. You know, get on humanesociety.org, reach out to us, reach out. We've got puppy mill specific social media channels like the Humane Society of the United States Puppy Mill Facebook page. We'll, a lot of people will probably be watching this from that page because we'll post the link there. You know, Instagram and Twitter, we have accounts there. I'm personally on all of those accounts, usually under this screen name, John P. Goodwin. Find us, get in touch, sign up, because we want to be able to tell you about events. We want to tell you about bills that are coming in your state or your locality, so you can you can come to a lobby day. You can communicate with your legislator. But I want to let's close with this: we've got a good team at the Humane Society of the United States, a professional staff that work very hard and very dedicated. But we have no more hours in the day than anyone else. A handful of professional staff in D.C. can help organize and can help set strategy. We can't do it by ourselves, though. We have to have the grassroots. We have to have the people mobilizing and working on this. So I encourage everyone to get involved. 
So I have grassroots, right? No lease for pause, uh, dot com. That's a pledge. If you're a broker, you go online and you just pledge that you will not lease space. It's free. I think that's something maybe we can push to try to get a bigger platform. So grassroots people can reach out and work with you and reach out. And through that, they would be contacting local shopping centers, different property management companies and trying to get these pledges. And I think that's a great thing. I mean, I hope that people watching this sign up for No Lease for Pause and uh, work with you on that because I think it's a very good project. Your support is very important. You swing a big hammer and I think you know, for brokers and management companies. And it says something about them, that they do care. There seems to be a stigma when you talk about puppy mills. And then they go, oh yeah, here we go. She's going to talk about puppy mills. It really is a crisis. And Lisa Ling did a documentary on Oprah. I think it was back in 2008 or 2009. And the puppy mill sales actually dropped because people... People were so impacted. Maybe she needs to do something again. It was kind of funny. A guy in Pennsylvania put up a billboard asking her to do a story on puppy mills. She saw it and did the story. He was involved with this group up there called Mainline Animal Rescue. And I remember I was in, I worked at HSUS then, but I was in the animal fighting campaign. I wasn't working on puppy mills, but I remember we all went to a, a little eatery down the street and had lunch while we watched the Oprah segment. That was a monumental day. But it had a big impact. Huge impact, huge impact. And, you know, we, we, we definitely want to get more and more exposés like that. Uh, and we pitched them. We pitched them. I tell you, it, it's getting media these days is interesting. Newsrooms <laughs> are gutted. We've got some best practices that help generate more coverage. Not going to tell them here because I don't want the people from the other side <laughs> watching to know, but you got to stay on the cutting edge. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if anyone watching this wants to participate and help, reach out to Liz Menagon at hamstopause.com and HSUS. And let's all of us join together and do better and stop this crap, please. Yeah. One of our groups. Liz yes. has got some great things going. If you don't want to sign up with us, sign up with her. Just get involved. I'm just one person that had an idea and from that felt responsible enough to spin it off to No Lease for Pause and then also puppymills.org, which was very interesting, reaching out to companies that own the billboards who would be willing to put up a sign saying, stop puppy mills, don't shop billboardsagainstpuppymills.org is something I want to push eventually as well. It's about $5,000 a month to put up a billboard, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that needs support. Yeah. It, it does need support. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tez, for allowing us to talk on your platform. John, I'm looking forward to uh, coming down to DC and meeting you and having a chat. Yeah, anytime. Just give me a little heads up notice. Make sure I'm in town. We'll get together, have lunch, strategize. I would love to. I'm Thank coming. <laughs> well, come on. I'm coming down. Awesome. I love getting lunch. Let's all do it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, everybody.